Well, once again, brethren, the Lord has been gracious to us, given us rest, brought us together, and now let's seek his face for his blessing upon our time. Holy Father, we count it a great privilege to address you, the living God, as our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And this is our great desire as we enter into another day of wrestling together with what it means to be able preachers of your word. And we look to you that your blessing would rest upon us, upon me as I seek to instruct my brethren, upon my brethren as they listen with discernment, proving all things, holding fast to that which is good. And we trust you so to draw near and to help us in speaking and listening that when this hour is over, we may be able to say with unfeigned gratitude, thank you for hearing our prayers and for meeting with us. Come then, we pray, by the needed help of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brethren, as we begin this morning, I must take a few minutes before coming into the lecture that I've prepared for this hour uh, to plug up two holes that I left yesterday in the last lecture. And before I do, I want to relate an incident from my own life of many, many years ago. I was in a conference, And one of the other speakers was a retired army chaplain. He wasn't much of a preacher, but apparently he had been greatly used in counseling. And for some reason, since in the providence of God we ended up sitting together during the lunch hour, he said to me, young man, and it was appropriate for him to address me that way, there was probably at least a 30-year differential in age, said, young man, do you believe the Bible when it says we have the treasure in earthen vessels? We have the treasure in clay pots? And because he had a military background, I responded by saying, yes, sir. He said, well, let me tell you something. Never forget it. The treasure is never more precious than when you let the clay show. Never be afraid to let the clay show. Well, my clay was showing in that last lecture. Some of you will have picked up when I began to speak. My mouth was all kind of mush, and I was finding it difficult even to speak clearly. And then at certain points, as my own heart and mind enlarged with things, I just plain plumb looked over uh, two points that were in your notes, and they are vital things. So I want to take just a couple of minutes to Uh, plug up those holes, and as I looked back over it, that's the kind of thing that many years ago uh, I would have been chastising myself and scolding myself, but the words of that dear old brother come back to me. God let the clay show, my son, and that hopefully will make you appreciate the treasure all the more. So as a result of my clay showing, I direct your attention to page 19, and to what would be the sixth council with regard to establishing the boundaries. Letter C at the top of that page should read, wisely establish and select the boundaries, add the conjunction and, and then as you come down, the second last one from the bottom, consider the necessity of the unity of discourse. When you're marking out the boundaries of your consecutive expository preaching, don't necessarily think in terms of, well, I'm a three or four verse man. There may be a section in which unity of discourse would demand just one or two verses. Unity of discourse later on in the chapter or the next chapter, it might be perfectly appropriate to handle twice as many as the three or four verses. To try to illustrate it, I was thinking back to my preaching through First Peter, and though I don't have any of those sermon outlines with me, I was thinking of how would there be unity of discourse if I were beginning to preach through Peter's eulogy 
at the beginning of that marvelous epistle. It begins with a general greeting, verses 1 and 2, but then he breaks into this eulogy, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's not the end of the eulogy, but it would seem to me that a man might break off verses 3 and 4 and entitle his sermon, Begotten Again to a Living Hope and a Glorious Inheritance. And you would have some unity of discourse as Peter gives emphasis to the wonderful issue of God's work in bringing us to a divine begetting, it is unto a living hope, and it's unto this glorious inheritance. So that's what I meant to emphasize and skipped over, but now go back and address it briefly. Consider, in setting your boundaries, the necessity of unity of discourse. Now, over on the next page, page 20, letter D, carefully analyze the language of the text. That's the fourth initial discipline. Having set the boundaries, we now know we're going to deal with these particular verses. Then you must enter into the spade work of responsible exegesis. And here I would offer almost the same advice as I did with regard to the textual expository sermon. It's at this point you're going to use your lexicons, your concordances, your more technical commentaries, and the other linguistic aids that will help you to get into the heart of the mind of God as embodied in the grammar of that particular portion of the Word of God. And when I say your more technical commentaries, I'm thinking if you're working in the Old Testament, Kyle and Dalish. Here and there, you're going to get some very uh, helpful thoughts for application and pastoral insight. But for the most part, Kyle and Dalish are going to help you, like myself. I learned the Hebrew alphabet and a little bit of Hebrew from a Hebrew teacher in a Bible college. But in the providence of God, my efforts to get a grasp upon Hebrew, at least equal to my measure of grasp upon Greek, uh, fell apart. And so I've had to work all my life with secondary sources in the Hebrew. But you learn what are some of those responsible secondary sources. In Kyle and Dalish, in the New Testament, Alford, uh, any of the commentaries of Edie, the more contemporary a pillar series of commentaries are sort of halfway between the technical and the pastoral, but you'll find them very helpful in seeking to get a handle on what the grammar, what the words, what the flow of thought is in terms of our text. So as ideas then begin to form in your mind, you start writing on your exegesis sheet, and it may be that you're also writing on your homiletic sheet as you begin to see from the structure of the grammar and the sentences and the clauses and phrases the various uh, emphases that the Holy Spirit has embedded in the text itself and you begin to record those. Many teachers of homiletics strongly advise diagramming sentences. It's a painful and sometimes difficult discipline, but it can be helpful in causing you to see. Here is the main thought. For example, if you're preaching through First Peter, you are under God, begotten again unto a living hope to an inheritance that is. And here are the descriptions of that inheritance. What is the inheritance? And it is that which is marked by being undefiled, incorruptible, and it fades not away, and it's reserved in heaven. Those are the four characteristics of that inheritance, and you want to preach it in such a way that you reflect that structure in the text itself. So, 
That's what I wanted to say to plug up the two holes from yesterday as my two bird dogs caught my uh, clay showing oversight of those two things. Now we come this morning to the intermediate steps in the construction of a consecutive expository sermon. We've dealt with those preliminary or initial steps or disciplines. We now come to the intermediate disciplines or steps, and I offer to you three of them. First of all, you must at this point seek to reduce the materials to their natural divisions. The old writers called this a work of distribution and of invention. I like some of those older terms. They fascinate me. Uh, I guess because people don't think in these terms and uh, probably because my age draws me uh, to something old. I don't know why, but I, I like the fact that they speak of distribution. This is what we're doing now. We've taken the text, we've analyzed the, the grammar, and now how are we going to distribute this into its different categories for preaching? At this point, you are sorting out the various building materials and organizing them into piles for orderly construction. And at this point, Lloyd-Jones has some very helpful counsel. He says, we've now arrived at the principle or teaching that you want to put to the people. That's the burden of the text. The next step is to divide this up into propositions or heads, headings, call it what you like, and there are a number of things to say about this. Perhaps I'd better deal first with the numerical question. There are some preachers who are absolute slaves in this respect. You must have three heads and three only, and I would say and three always. If you have fewer than three heads, you're a bad preacher. If you have more than three, you're an equally bad preacher. This is quite ridiculous, of course, but it is amazing to notice how easily one falls into habits and becomes the slave of a tradition. I was certainly brought up in this tradition of always an introduction and three heads. People looked for them. That was the almost invariable custom of the preachers. Then he goes on to say the important thing about these heads is they must be there in your text and they must arise naturally out of it. This is vital. The actual division into heads, as I'm now going to show you, is not as easy as it may sound. Some people seem to be gifted with an unusual facility in this respect. And then he quotes the the common consensus about Alexander McLaren having a hammer that he hit any text and it broke into its natural heads. But then he goes on to say, we may not have that hammer. It is not given to many of us to have this golden hammer But we must always make sure that the divisions arise naturally out of the text. Let me put this negatively, because it is so important. Never force a division and do not add to the number of divisions for the sake of some kind of completeness that you have in your mind in order to make it conform to your usual practice. The heading should be natural and appear to be inevitable. That when you're done, the average Christian sitting there with his Bible would say, Oh, I see that. I see that. I see that. Not awed by saying, How in the world did he ever get that out of the passage? They're to be awed by the content of Scripture, not your cleverness in making heads out of non-heads that are there or not there in the text. And likewise, Etter, one of our older instructors, he says, this process of arranging is called by rhetoricians disposition and completes the work of invention. The difference between the two is pointed out by Dr. Kidder, another of the old writers on homiletics. And I like this. Quote, invention accumulates, disposition distributes. Invention gathers together the wood, 
the stone, the iron, and every species of material essential to a building. Disposition from shapeless heaps constructs a beautiful edifice. The business of invention is to roam in the forest, delve in the quarry, sink the mine and purge its ores, to visit the manufactory and select its useful or ornamental products. Disposition takes the materials selected and places each stone, each piece of wood, and each ornament, fastening it where it is required. This is the next step in our sermon construction. I call it the intermediate step of doing the work of disposition. But then secondly, you must seek wisely to arrange the divisions. To stick with the analogy of the building materials, it's one thing to sort out the roofing material from the framing and the foundation material. However, you must not put the cinder blocks where the roof belongs. Cinder blocks don't make a good roof. Try it sometime and you'll see. The arrangement will vary. Sometimes it will be an arrangement that is primarily dictated by the language of the text. Other times there may be a logical order that does not follow the exact arrangement in the text. Other times chronological or other rhetorical issues will determine the arrangement of your divisions. And then thirdly, as an intermediate step, You must seek wisely to give precise, simple, and if possible, and here I preach to myself, brief wording to your divisions. Just like a title to a sermon ought to have a brief combination of words, whatever it takes in the mind to come up with brief but accurate titles. I got shortchanged as I've analyzed what God gave me He shortchanged me there. I mean, over the years when the tape guys say, Pastor, what title shall I give to that sermon? I say, you don't have enough room on the disc to put it. I mean, I just find myself with a more Puritan mind of trying uh, to express in an accurate way what the title is. Uh, I just get awfully wordy. But when I try to get unwordy, then I'm not pleased with what I have. So sometimes I've just told the tape man, you give it any title you think that fits. I've just said, I just don't have a skill for that. But we've got to labor, brethren, at this matter with our headings, seeking if possible to give brief wording. And as I said with regard to the other kinds of sermons, it, it, it is at this point that you must labor to make an honest attempt to construct headings that have parallel grammatical constructions. The verbs, the adjectives, the adverbs should have a dominant element of parallelism. Apart from this, the people will not readily grasp your headings, nor are they likely to retain them in their memories. As with my counsel regarding the discussion or argument of the previous kinds of sermons, it is at this point Rodale's synonym finder will be a wonderful companion to you. As I said in the other lecture, I have worn the spine thin and repaired it with uh, electrical tape uh, to keep that book together. Now, without discounting the exhortation just given, a warning is in order. Don't become a slave to alliteration. Your attempts at alliteration must never become bizarre, silly, or clever. You don't want your people to leave the sanctuary murmuring to one another in admiration or snickering with humor at the cleverness or foolishness of your attempted alliteration. You want them to believe, leave believing that the text has been opened up with lucid clarity and the wording of your divisions has greatly helped them to attain that persuasion so that the headings and their wording, though we try to have linguistic parallelism, that's all to an end of helping them with us to delve into and to discover the mind of God in that text. 
Well, having looked at the initial disciplines, the intermediate disciplines, we now come in the third place to the concluding disciplines or steps in constructing the discussion or argument of a consecutive expository sermon. And at this point, I've simply reproduced those things that I've sought to demonstrate as vital at this stage in dealing with the discussion of a topical expository and of a textual expository sermon. Specifically, it is at this point you should work in your illustrations if and where needed. They may not be needed. You may have in your study have come to such a clear grasp of the passage and it may be such that it illustrates itself and to add your own illustrations is really just to add unnecessary filler. On the other hand, it may be that you've had to plod through something that demanded intense mental concentration that could be a bit obscure, and an illustration will help to act like that last turn on the lens of a camera. You're sitting watching a home movie, and you know that's Uncle John, and you know that's Uncle Harry, and you know that's Dad and Mom, but you're straining, it's fuzzy, and you say, adjust the lens, and someone, ah, and it just brings it into sharp focus. Many times, that's the function of an illustration. People have begun to see things, but it's a bit fuzzy. You give a like. You become like your master. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. And someone says, ah, now I see it. Now, with regard to those indwelt by the Spirit, Jesus said the parables were for their instruction. They were a means of blinding those on the outside. But our preaching should be such that those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is their teacher, when we open up the text, they should be able to say, thank God I have been taught of God through my pastor's labors. Work in your illustrations if and where needed. Work in your applications. See if along the way applications can be made, though you will at the end, as we'll see, God willing, in the two lectures on the conclusion, draw everything together and give focused, pointed, battering ram application. That does not mean you should not have applications along the way. And then work in your transitions and your recapitulations. Do it right through the sermon. You give heading number one. We've seen from this text that Paul says in every single Christian there has been the experience of a change of masters. Now we come to see from the text that it leads to a change of practice. You have your fruit unto holiness and you open up the change of practice. And before you come to heading three, having seen together, the text tells us that when there's a real conversion, there's a change of masters leading to a change of practice. Now we see from the text it will issue in a change of destiny. And you're constantly doing that recapitulation in your transitions so that you're not only driving the previous points home with force, you're helping their minds to be prepared for a new division of thought that you're going to introduce in your exposition. So those are the three stages of preparation of the discussion or argument of a consecutive expository sermon. And what I want to do in the time that remains is to set before you some concluding counsels and exhortations. And I have six words of counsel and exhortation with respect to constructing responsible, artful, edifying, consecutive expository sermons. Number one, seek to expose your mind to a variety of viable models of consecutive exposition. As we were talking in the discussion yesterday, there is no one way to do this. God has made us all with diversity of gifts, a diversity of mental cast and bent And all of that will leak out and leach into the way we do this. 
So we cannot say, here is the model of consecutive exposition. No, there are many viable models. And this counsel is, has particular relevance to men just beginning in the ministry. There may be some of you who are watching this DVD who are on the very front end of your ministry. And I urge you particularly to expose your mind to many viable models of consecutive exposition. And for the rest of us, no matter how long we've been doing it, it would be tragic if any one of us were to think we've attained such a degree of homiletical expertise that we don't need to expose ourselves to men who are masters of this craft. Now, where are they to be found? Well, obviously, some of them are to be found in the time-proven literature from the past that is one of the great legacies that God has given to those of us who speak English or Americanese. I'm thinking here of men like John Brown, Alexander McLaren, Archbishop Layton, and other pastoral commentaries. It's very interesting when you read John Brown on 1 Peter, he's quoting Bishop Layton again and again and again and again. And when John Brown takes time and space to quote somebody, you better believe it's good stuff. And thankfully, he quotes him in English, unlike, unlike Owen. Those of us who don't know Latin, Owen will say, and we have this choice insight from Augustine. I say, oh my, why didn't somebody beat me into a Latin class when I was young? But anyway, uh, you, these are the men who are time-proven masters of the art of consecutive expository preaching. And not least, though last in my list, is John Calvin. When we read Calvin's commentaries, we must remember that with but three or four exceptions, those commentaries are the product of someone taking down his expository sermons in shorthand, going through very little editing and seeing the light of day in French and Latin and now in English and who knows how many other languages. That was Calvin standing in the pulpit at Geneva, sometimes three times during the week and then on the Lord's Day, expounding one book after another. Now, Granted, Calvin is not the most helpful in terms of teaching us how to give patent and clear headings to our consecutive exposition. Calvin will not give you much help there. His unity of discourse and his logical sequence is very clear, but he does not help us to do the work where most of us will have to work with headings. When you've got a mind as massive as Calvin's and you've been trained in law as Calvin was, then maybe you could get away with that which is logical and sequential without having heads one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So granted, Calvin won't help you when you're looking at a text saying, how can I divide it? You go page after page with Calvin, oh, he disappoints me. But you want to understand what the text is saying what the burden of the text is, what the pastoral application is, I would make this statement in terms of exegetically sound, pastorally relevant, rhetorically balanced, consistently edifying consecutive exposition of the Word of God, no one excels the Master of Geneva. A couple of years ago, one of my Dear friends, we have a 35-year friendship. He said, Pastor Martin, if you could turn back the clock and do it all over again, what would you do differently in terms of your own personal disciplines? The first thing that came to my mind was this. I would set myself on a course of commitment to read from beginning to end all of the commentaries of John Calvin. Through the years, I've worked through many whole sets of my Puritans 
by taking four or five pages a morning. I call it my uh, priming the pump of my devotional exercises in reading four or five pages of Brooks, of Owen, of Flavo, of these rich masters of experimental divinity. I could wish that someone gave me that counsel when I was 25 years of age. Standing before you now at age 75, I'd be able to say, brethren, I've read every page of Calvin's commentaries and I don't regret one minute poured into that exercise. I can't say enough how this recent commemoration of Calvin's 500th anniversary of his birthday has driven me back to consider Calvin. I'm back to reading in the Institutes and Joel Beakey has put together a lovely devotional book that is excerpts of Calvin uh, 300, and he says, uh, with Calvin for 365 days. And I've carried it with me from Michigan here to New Jersey, lying in bed at the other night, finding rich material for my own soul. So, brethren, this is the kind of stuff that will be helpful in exposing yourself to responsible, proven, consecutive, expository preachers. Then, of course, we have contemporary men who've produced many books which contain helpful models of consecutive expository preaching. And then we have the abundance of materials that are available to us on Sermon Audio and other websites. Never forget 1 Corinthians 3, 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, all things are yours and you are Christ. All these men are Christ's gifts to me. Men, contemporary men, such as John MacArthur and John Piper, Alistair Begg, Sinclair Ferguson, and others, are good models of well-structured expository preaching coupled with the use of dignified but good contemporary linguistic style. I listen to those men because I would have a tendency to be a bit stilted in my verbal style. And MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and to a not quite the same degree, but very really, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, these men are good examples. They never speak in a way that's cheap, that's tawdry, that is undignified but they do have a verbal style that rings with contemporaneity so that the word is becoming flesh to this generation and you want to expose yourself to them. You don't take MacArthur's commentaries if you want serious exegetical work laid out before you. At least I don't. But if I want to see how this thing can be preached, you will find that helpful, except when you come to the book of Revelation. All right. And a few other things. And then, and I'm serious on this, I heartily recommend the sermons of many of my former Trinity Ministerial Academy students. I've never listened to the men I'm going to mention, and there are others, without profit to my soul, and saying, man, I wish I'd heard that before I preached that passage, and I've learned from my students how to do this work of consecutive expository preaching. I'm referring to Cal Walden, my son-in-law, Gord Cook, Mitch Lush, Bob Carr, Mike Brackett, Jim Dom, this gentleman sitting here, and his fellow elder, Bart Carlson. These men teach me as I listen to them and how they handle the passage. Ah, I wouldn't have done that, but I see the wisdom in that. So brethren, expose yourself I hope I have some credibility when standing before you as someone working at preaching for 57 years, I still want to learn. And if God can use people that were my students to be my teacher, then I bless God for that. So I urge you in this matter of counsel concerning consecutive expository ministry, expose your mind continually to a variety of viable models. Number two, second word of counsel. I urge you to continue to read literature on the subject of expository preaching. There may be much advice that you'll discard, many man-made rules you'll have to reject, but you will find a nugget here or there. 
Now, I don't think you're going to find too many nuggets from a 30-year-old man who couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag, who has a Ph.D. that made him qualified to be called to this or that seminary to teach homiletics. That, to me, is one of the most ridiculous things on the face of the earth. It's the only professional discipline I know where novices become the teachers of practitioners. If you were going to be a surgeon, you would sit under a man who was known for his surgical expertise. That's the man who would teach you, who had slid open people's bellies for years and learned how to split them open, take out what they should take out, and put them back together again so they could function. You wouldn't get someone who just came out of med school. And these people that go into the seminaries who know nothing of what it is to face real live people week after week with their variety of needs and prejudices and hang-ups, etc., and trying to awaken them intellectually and spiritually to a rich diet, who are they to tell us how to do it? it? It irritates me. I hope it's not sinful irritation. But those men that have done it and done it well, when they write... Try to get hold of their works and learn from them. Thirdly, I urge you to seek the evaluation of competent critics with respect to your efforts in consecutive expository preaching. Among these critics, don't discount your house Nathanus. You know who your house Nathanus is? Nathanus is the female rendering of Nathan the prophet. That's your wife. Don't discount her constructive criticisms, your fellow office bearers, and the discerning and loyal people in your congregation. The half-disaffected, disloyal, what you need with them is what Spurgeon bequeathed to all of his men. He says, as you leave this college, I bequeath three utterly, wonderfully valuable gifts. One blind eye, one deaf ear, and one pocket with a big hole in it. And you will learn that there are things you see, you look at with your blind eye. Things you hear, you look at with your deaf ear. I got two deaf ears to listen to it. Not look at, but listen. And then things that come to you, put them in the pocket with a hole in it. And you've got people in your congregation, you've got to do that with their criticisms. Because... Uh, They've got a quirky bent. They'll go five years and never once thank you for anything. But if you have a verbal glitch or you you say something a little bit foolish, etc., they're there at the door and they're, oh, pastor, did you know this morning that, yes, yes, I'm very much aware of that. I'm very humbled. Thank you for pointing it out to me. And (laughs) then you say, Lord, give me a fresh baptism of the love that bears all things. Even this crotchety member that never gives me any encouragement, but let me make a verbal slip, and they're on me like a cat on a stray sick mouse. But find out who your competent, sympathetic critics are, and open them up to your to uh, their input. Now, I've done this recently with this matter of writing. I got all kinds of people telling me, Pastor Martin, you got to write, got to write, got to write. And I say, thank you, appreciate your counsel. However... I've got to be persuaded that I can cultivate a gift to write that is acceptable and worth putting some stuff and embalming it in printer's ink. So what I've done, in the providence of God, I can't go into the details, I resurrected uh, two sermons that I preached at a pastor's conference several years ago. I've hammered the first one into an initial draft, and I sent it out to about a dozen men with a covering letter saying, Brother... Make me an absolutely faceless man. Read this thing like you don't know me, have no relationship to me, and tell me, do you believe there's something worthwhile and that I have at least the seedling evidences of a gift to write? Be absolutely honest with me. Because I want to know, and if I should not be a writer, I'm willing to say to all the people who think I should, brethren, thank you for your sympathy and for your encouragement. 
but I don't believe I had it. I just am too entrenched in a preacher's head. I've got a preacher's head. I've had it for 57 years. I still keep pouring stuff into it. I may not be able to convert it into a writer's head. And if so, I'll go to my grave in peace. But if I have a talent and it needs to be exercised, I won't go to my grave in peace if I don't exercise it. But I need my brethren. I'm not going to make that decision unilaterally. But one brother sitting here who's even helping me in that area and other brethren of of stature who are themselves accomplished writers. So I trust by just stating that you'll know that this exhortation is not something that's just coming off the cuff. But by the grace of God, I'm seeking to implement in this area right now where I need to do it. Fourth word of counsel. I urge you not to quit expository preaching because of the rigors of the task or because of your failures in times past. The demands which this kind of preaching make upon you are many, but all of them are good for you as a preacher. Now listen to what I'm going to say. I believe it's accurate. Many of you started preaching with a group of hungry-hearted people starved for good food. And they were willing to bear with many of your deficiencies in your consecutive expository preaching because they were so hungry for the food of the Word, even though you served it up rather sloppily and at times without much savor, they were so hungry, they grabbed onto it. However... They've been growing in knowledge. They've been growing in their understanding of what good preaching is. They listen to good preaching. They read good preaching. They go to conferences. You have guest speakers come in. If you don't grow in your ability before their eyes, you're going to lose their conscience. That's why Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, give yourself wholly to these things that your progress may be manifest unto all because it's only in that setting that we carry our people with us and they see us improving in our skill as preachers. So I urge you, don't back off from this discipline because of the rigors of the task or because of your failures in the past. Listen to William Taylor's counsel. Let no man who wishes to succeed in consecutive exposition imagine that he can do so without great labor. No mere cursory perusal of the passage before he goes to the pulpit will suffice. No hasty study of it will be enough. He needs to enter into the spirit of the writer to recall the times and circumstances in which he wrote, and to live and move and have his being for the weak in the argument or narrative, the prophecy or parable, the psalm or supplication which he is considering. He must follow the old law, canon of Bengal, quote, apply thy whole self to the text and apply the whole text to thyself. William Taylor gives us helpful counsel. It's going to be work, but it will be blessed work with the blessing of God. Counsel number five, never forget that some of the major benefits of consecutive expository preaching are cumulative and long-range. A man who continually preaches striking individual texts and powerful topical sermons may have the luxury of more immediate enthusiastic praise and expressions of gratitude from his people for his labors. However, in creating a biblical mindset, imparting to your people a method of interpreting the word of God and a host of other benefits, nothing, nothing substitutes for consecutive exposition. Again, listen to William Taylor on this point. Expository preaching is not popular. The people don't like it. They won't stand it, some say. Now, in answer to this, I have to say that the minister has to consult, and listen carefully, the 
benefit of his hearers as well as their tastes. And where the two conflict, their benefits and their taste, he has to prefer that which will promote the former, that is their benefit, rather than that which will please the latter. If he's fully persuaded that they need such instruction as biblical consecutive exposition regularly prosecuted can alone impart, then he ought to give himself to it, even at the risk of creating some little dissatisfaction at first. For he may rely upon it that if he does his work faithfully and well, that's the key word, faithfully and well, they will grow interested in it in spite of themselves and will come at last to enjoy it. And I would add a parenthesis, that is, if they are regenerate church members. If they're unregenerate, the more the word speaks its message, the more their antipathy will surface. For this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light and will not come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved. So for those who are unregenerate, the more you engage in faithful, honest, consecutive exposition of the word and they're confronted with light from all of the various directions from which it'll come in such preaching, their opposition will increase. But among the true people of God, Taylor is right they will at length enjoy it. Of course, if the preacher is ambitious of acquiring a reputation for great sermons and wishes to hear many complimentary expressions about the beauty and brilliancy of his effort, then he will leave off consecutive exposition. And indeed, in that case, he had better leave off preaching altogether, for the pulpit is not the place for such displays. And then he goes on to give further counsel on this matter of the long-term cumulative benefits of this kind of preaching. And then my sixth and final word of counsel is, don't make your consecutive expository sermons a quotation factory. You're being supported by the church in order to labor in the word and in doctrine. And while you need the input of the brains of other men in your preparation, what you present in the pulpit should be substantially the fruit of the labor of your own brains, not a reiteration of the fruit of the brains of other men. When preaching through any book in the New Testament, I generally surrounded myself with no fewer than about 15 commentaries from those that were the more technical to those that were the more pastoral to those that were the more homiletical. And as you work with those commentaries, trying to follow these basic steps that I've laid out, you find yourself instinctively, when I would pile them up next to my desk, reaching for these three, when I'm trying to delve into the meaning of the text itself, when I'm trying to seek how to break it down. Ah, here are two or three that have an excellent homiletical mind. You reach for those. And when I'm thinking of applications and don't find anything Oh, Matthew Henry will always give you some fuel for application. You turn to old Matthew Henry and you get acquainted with these men. And like going through First Peter, I just wore my three volumes of John Brown, uh, thin at the spine, just rich, helpful stuff. And Hebert, among the more modern commentators, and Grudem, uh, and you find these are tremendous help and everything in you would like to just do a patchwork and just bring that before your people and read it with zip and some vim and vigor. But that's not what you're to do. Let them condition your understanding. But when you come into the pulpit, don't be quoting. It gets wearisome. Some men, whether uh, they are insecure and they want to hide behind the commentator or whether they want to appear learned and prove to their people, I have studied hard and read a lot of books, and if you don't believe it, I'll quote ten of them in the sermon. I don't know what the motive is, but brethren, don't let your consecutive expositions become 
a quotation factory. And on that note, I want to close by reading again from William Taylor these very perceptive words. One thing, however, the preacher must guard against in consecutive exposition, he must not turn the pulpit into the chair of the exegetical professor and spend a long time in hunting down some poor Greek particle or digging up some obscure Hebrew root. Processes are for the study. Results are for the pulpit. Our people do not want to know what every German, English, or American commentator has thought. When one asks what time it is, It would be a mockery of his request if you should begin to tell him all the details of the mechanisms of a watch, or if you should go into an exhaustive dissertation on the relative merits of Trinity Church clock, that's apparently in New York, or Bennett's, or the clock at the railroad depot. You look at your own watch and you tell him what its fingers point to, and that is all. So let it be. Do not make your expository sermons a place of deposit for barrowfuls of other men's opinions gathered from all quarters, but tell your hearers what you've concluded for yourselves with the grounds on which your opinion rests, and then pass on and press the practical application of the principle that you have found in the passage to the consciences of your people and the circumstances of your times. And with that counsel, I close my dealing with this matter of the constructing of our argument or discussion in consecutive expository preaching. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are made conscious once again of how vulnerable we are to those things that would take the edge off the effectiveness of our preaching. And we pray that by your grace, giving us a spirit of diligence and watchfulness, that we may avoid the things that would lessen the impact of our preaching, that we may incorporate every single legitimate factor that would make our sermons instruments in the hands of the Holy Spirit to call many of your elect to yourself and to build up your saints in their most holy faith. Thank you now for your presence with us in this hour We commit to you the things with which we've wrestled together. In Jesus' name, amen.